You can go and go ahead and turn in your Bibles to John chapter one, as we read. If you didn't, if you happen to close them, we'll be there this morning. John chapter one, as we begin our series entitled "Follow Me: A Journey Through the Gospels of Jesus." So we begin this uh, long journey together, studying the life of Jesus Christ and. Um, I'm excited to begin as we start actually last week just introducing these Gospels, um, seeing how each writer wrote uniquely and yet inspired by the Holy Spirit, um, speaking and writing down the words of God about our Lord and Savior Jesus. But as we begin this morning, I want us to think about the life of Christ you know, many people in our world believe that Jesus of Nazareth was a historical figure. They would not dispute that he lived and ministered in and around the, the city of Jerusalem and in that time period. They would affirm that he was even a prophet of God. Even many atheists would affirm that Jesus really lived on the earth. Also, people of other faiths even attest that Jesus was fully human. Surprisingly, one group that affirms this are Muslims. Many Muslims believe that Jesus was born into this world from a virgin woman. Muslims would also say that and confess that God, who they call Allah, gave Jesus the Holy Spirit and revelation to teach about him. While Muslims deny that Jesus was crucified, they do affirm that he was raised in bodily form into heaven to be with God. But when you're speaking with a Muslim about Jesus, if you mention that Jesus is the Son of God to them, they will shriek in horror. See, then at that moment, you have created or you have uh, uh, offended them and their God because they deny fully that Jesus could ever be the Son of God or even part of God. They declare at the beginning of their faith what's called the Shahada which is that there is only one God, but uh, there, is only, there is no other God but Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. So for you to say that Jesus is the Son of God, God in the flesh, you are basically blaspheming their God. So of course that is impossible then for us to say that we uh, believe in the same deity as the Muslims. Likewise, if a Jehovah's Witness comes to your house, knocking on your door and wants to sit down with you and discuss the Bible or their translation of the Bible, they will try to convince you that they believe the same as you do. They will try to convince you that they believe in Jesus and they follow Jesus Christ of the Bible. But your Bible is different from their Bible. Your Bible says that Jesus is the Son of God. Their Bible, the New World Translation, states in John 1, which we're reading today, that Jesus was not the God, but he was a God. They actually believe that Jesus Christ is not God in the flesh, but he is actually Michael the archangel in the flesh. And so when you speak of Jesus, you are speaking of the Son of God. They speak of Jesus. They are speaking of the incarnate angel Michael. And of course, they should make this distinction with you when they're in your home, but they don't do that. And so they would deny, of course, that Jesus is God and, and man in one. 
It is the deity of Jesus that really sets us apart in Christianity from all others who claim that Jesus is truly God. As I said before, even even honest atheists have to look at the historical evidence and affirm that Jesus lived on the earth. But what they will deny is that Jesus lived on the earth as fully man and fully God. And so it is his deity that sets us apart as Christians. When Jesus comes into the world as God, putting on flesh, we call this in the Christian world the incarnation of God. Jesus coming, stepping out of eternity, putting on flesh, subjecting himself to time and space, and becoming a man. And of course, to claim that Jesus is God is is a radical statement of distinction in this world. And of course, why do we claim that Jesus is God? Because he claimed that he was God himself. Now, what's interesting is, is that you'll never find in the, in the Gospels Jesus actually saying the words, I am God. He never says that I am God, but he alludes to it over and over again with solid evidence, speaking to the people, affirming his deity. And so as we focus this morning, beginning our journey on the life of Jesus, we have to begin with the life of Jesus and the existence of Jesus as the Son of God as in eternity. Before we can ever make it to the life of Jesus on this earth, we have to begin with the pre-existent Son of God, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. Now at that time, he never took on the name Jesus. He was just God's Son or the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. And this is what John is trying to communicate to us in John chapter 1. Like a SWAT team kicking in the the front door of your home, John does not introduce this gospel with any fluff, with any banter. He starts in chapter 1 verse 1 with a powerful theology uh, of of Christology of who Jesus is. And we're going to focus this morning uh, on only the first five verses because these are so rich with truth. And again, as I said, what I'd like for us to focus on is how we see Jesus as the eternal Son of God. The eternal Son of God. John begins, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, as you're reading this in John chapter 1, immediately John wants to to capture our mind and take us back to the beginning of creation. That's why he uses the words, in the beginning. He is saying, listen, we are going to start at creation, Genesis chapter 1. And so as he's writing these things, it would be impossible for any Jewish person or even anyone that that was familiar with the Jewish scriptures to not move beyond the fact that John is saying, in the beginning for a purpose, and that is to take us back to creation. But what's interesting about that is he is placing Jesus in a place of eternity before creation. This is what he says. In the beginning was the Word. 
was being a past tense verb. In the beginning, the word already existed. Now that takes a moment for us to wrap our minds around because he is giving Jesus, the Son of God, a reference point beyond all that has existed. And so this morning, I'm going to ask you to to really step outside of, of just that kind of sometimes that complacent listening and really put on your thinking caps and, and begin to visualize for yourself something that, that we don't sit and ponder oftentimes, and that is eternity. A.W. Tozer writes an incredible uh, treatise on the book of John. He doesn't cover all of John as an, as an exposition, but he, he takes selected passages and in, in this section here, he does a remarkable job of getting our, the reader to visualize eternity as a time before time. He encourages us to, for a moment to think away time. To, in your mind, visualize your life without minutes, without hours, without days, without a calendar. Just for a moment to, to, to think in such a way as if those things do not exist. Tozer says that this exercise is like sitting in a basket and lifting yourself up in, in the basket off the ground. That's how difficult it is for the human mind. But in thinking of this, not only does he say to dismantle time, but he says, imagine now to dismantle space. All that is made of matter in the world does not exist. Your arm holding the Bible that's sitting on your lap, that is, you're seated in the chair on this earth, none of those things exist. Imagine the world not existing. Time, space, not existing. And he says this, and I quote, By now you're getting to the place where there's absolutely nothing in existence, but actually, actually you are only to the place that precedes time. God had no beginning because beginning is a creature word. And the means that someone was working on something, we use the word beginning. God started to work on it. He worked a while and finished it. And it, had a, it, and it had, meaning creation, a beginning and a finish. And both of those words are creature words. But God is not a creature. God is the creator. So you never say that God had a beginning. God could not receive anything from anybody because God had all there was. When you get to the back of it all, you, you know there that God has always been the uncaused one. And so when we think of that in the context of Jesus, we have to understand that Jesus existed before this time ever began. Now, John, he, he approaches this, this topic in a very unique way because we don't see the name Jesus in these passages. So how do we know that John is referring to Jesus? He says, in the beginning was the Word. He doesn't say, in the beginning was Jesus. He doesn't say, in the beginning was the Son of God. So how is it that we come to this being the Word? Well, if you have learned and, and studied like I have, oftentimes you're, you're just told, it just means Jesus. Well, what, why, does this mean, it, why does this mean Jesus? It just does. Well, there's obviously got to be more explanation than that, and I hope that you would 
dive deep into your word, the word of God, and, and find the truth behind these things. Well, one reason we know this is referring to Jesus is because in John chapter 1, verse 14, he tells us that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So right there, he kind of explains uh, for us who this word is. That the word became flesh dwelling among us, that we have seen the glory of God in this word, and that the word is, uh, the glory is from the only son, uh, from the father, full of grace and truth. What that means is that the word equals the son of God. But there's even more background to this truth. See, when you go back to creation and you think about the way that God has created all things, you have to understand and, re- and realize the power and the purpose of God's word in the world. Remember, God created uh, from nothingness, and what did he say? He spoke, let there be light, and there was light. And so from the beginning, it was the, it was the power from God's word that created all things. So that is the vehicle that is uh, the agent of creation, which is the word. The word of God creates. Genesis chapter 1, God said, let there be light, and there was light. And if you continue on through Jewish history, God continued to act and to speak through his authoritative and life-giving word. You guys have all read probably Psalm 19, If you're following through the Psalms on a daily basis, you may have read this yesterday because yesterday was the 19th, and this is Psalm 19. And David writes, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaim His handiwork. So what he's saying is is that as we look out into all that God created, we see God reveals Himself through what He has created. And another way that we could say is that God is speaking to us through his creation. He is showing us that he exists. That's why in verse 2 of Psalm 19, David writes, Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. Knowledge about who? Knowledge about God who created the beauty that surrounds us. Let me just encourage you, brothers and sisters, not to overlook what God has made. Take a moment and step out of technology and step out of busyness and go be alone and sit in a park or sit in the mountains or in the woods and reflect upon the beauty of our God who has made all these things. That they should inspire us to worship him, not just inspire us. David continues in Psalm 19, There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. What God is communicating, or what David is communicating to us, is that as creation speaks to us, it is revealing not just uh, that God made these things, but it is teaching us about God. That's why in Romans 1, it tells us that people in the world can see creation and see the things around us and that they are without excuse because God has revealed his existence to them through what has been made. 
So the person that we always use in sitting in Africa under a, you know, a, a thousands and thousands of miles from civilization, how can they really be saved? How can they really know who God is? Because God has revealed himself to them. He, he has said to them, through all that has been made, I exist. Come and seek me. Come and find me. And we call this the general revelation of God. Now, what we deny is that that person in Africa or, or some, some other continent sitting and, and reflecting upon what was created, we, we deny the fact that those people can be saved just by knowing the existence of God. Because we know that faith comes by hearing and hearing comes by the word of God. So they don't just need the general revelation of God, they need the word of God. And so as you maybe are a genius in, in science and, and you studied biology and geology and cosmology and all the other sciences, and what you should see in those things is that God is, is showing us through that study that he is real and that he exists. But in Psalm 19, David continues to move from, from general revelation to specific revelation, the law of God. And there we see throughout, um, throughout history where God has not just said, I exist in the world, but let me give you specifically who I am. And that's through the law of God. He specifically tells us through his words, through the law, that he is God. And that you can know him. And that you can, can have a relationship with him. That you were created in his image. Psalm 19, verse 7, even describes that the law of the Lord, this special revelation of God, as we call it, is perfect. It revives the soul. The testimony of the Lord as sure, making wise the simple. The precepts, uh, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. So as we think about John using the term the word, we see in prog this progressive in, in, in history where the word has brought forth life, the, the word of God is revealing uh, himself through creation generally, but then specifically God speaks to us through his word, through the law of God. And then ultimately and perfectly, the law of God is declared to us through Jesus. So Jesus becomes the personification of God's word. He embodies the word of God as hum humanity and God in one. We don't just read about Jesus. Some got to see Jesus. Some got to walk with Jesus. He personifies the living word of God. Write down Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. And so John writes that Jesus is the living word of God. 
and he is the eternal word of God. But what's interesting is that when he writes that as the word, or in the Greek it's the logos, he writes that not only for the Jewish audience, but if you remember last week we studied that John is really trying to encapsulate all of these uh, different cultures who would read his gospel. And what's interesting is that even the Greek culture had a concept of the logos in their culture. Greek philosophers like Philo and, and others taught that there was a, a that the cause of the universe was ordered by the word of, 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 of God, the logos of God. One specific philosopher who kind of coined this in the 6th century BC was a, was a man by the name of Heraclitus. Hera kind of sounds like a Greek word and Cletus kind of sounds like a southern word, right? That's the way I think of it. Heraclitus, or maybe you should say it Heraculus, I don't know. But he came to reason that all that exists in the world was not chaos, but it was ordered change. And that this ordered change had, a, had an origin and it was controlled by something or someone which he taught the Greeks was the logos of God. So imagine, John is writing this word and he's saying, Greeks, you have this concept of the logos. You have this concept of the word that is the cause of all that has been created. And Jews, you understand the power and, and, the, and the importance of the word of God in your culture. Let me bring this all together and tell you that this word, this word that, that you put so much emphasis on, is the eternal son of God. He is the eternal son of God. He has existed throughout all of eternity. He has no beginning. He was not only before the beginning, but as John continues in verse 1, the word was with God and the word was God. Now, folks, John is the, John is the Greek text that every new Greek uh, teacher goes to or a Greek student goes to in Greek class. So when I started seminary, and David started seminary, and David started seminary, and Adam started seminary, and whoever else has taken Greek language, you usually start in John or 1 John. Because John writes like the Cliff Notes versions of Greek. He just writes in very simple terms. These are simple Greek words. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. But let me warn you to, to not glance over simple truth. Because right here... He says very clear that the word was with God, okay? Jesus was with God. Is that what he's saying? No, what he is giving us is a theology of the Trinity. He's not just saying that Jesus was with God. He's saying that Jesus, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, is communing with God, has an intimacy with God. There is a Trinity uh, that is that is proclaimed throughout the Bible, and it's speaking here as the eternal Son of God dwelling with God in, in all eternity. In a sense there, we are seeing plurality of the Godhead, and yet believing and trusting that the Bible teaches what? That God is three persons in one. That's why the Jehovah Witnesses get to this verse and go, wait a minute. The Word was not the God, the Word was a God. Because there is no possible way that our God is more than one being. And we would say, you're right, he is only one being. 
and yet three distinct purposes or persons. And so here we have this eternal Son of God, this Trinitarian truth. We can see that, that this, this is, uh, John is proclaiming to us that there's an intimacy and a joy and a fellowship between the God the Father and God the Son in the Trinity. And of course, we will see throughout John that there's also an aspect of Jesus and the Holy Spirit's uh, work as well. But what's interesting that I, I think that we should take note of is in John chapter 17, as Jesus kind of elaborates on his relationship with the Father in John chapter 17. It's a great chapter to study. Um, I, I would encourage you to read this chapter in John chapter 17 very slowly in your quiet time this week. But in John chapter 17 verse 5, Jesus elaborates on his relationship with the Father. He says, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Can you imagine the thought of knowing that you existed before the world? We, we can't imagine that. Jesus is walking on the earth, and he is praying to the Father, saying, Glorify me as, as you have glorified yourself before the world existed. This relationship that we have together before the world existed. That is an amazing truth and an amazing declaration by Jesus. And it doesn't surprise us then why they, the Jews wanted to pick up stones and kill Jesus. John gives us two examples in John chapter 8, verse 59, and in John chapter 10, verse 31, both are examples of Jesus declaring that he is the eternal Son of God, that he, is the, um, he, is, he and the Father are one. In John chapter 8, verse 59, I, as I shared with you last week, Jesus declares, before Abraham was, I am. You remember that? And how that, that statement was basically Jesus saying the, the, the God of, of Yah, the Yahweh God or Jehovah God that declared himself and declared who he was from the burning bush with Moses in, in the Old Testament declares himself as I am. Jesus in the New Testament says before Abraham was I am. Jesus is basically saying I am God. And in John chapter 8, the Bible says that after Jesus said that, the Jews picked up stones to stone Jesus. Why? Because they believed that Jesus was being blasphemous, and the law of God taught that those who blaspheme God should be stoned. And then John chapter 10, verse 25, if they didn't pick up on that statement, if they didn't pick up on the, uh, the reference there to the Old Testament, Jesus is a little bit more clearer. John chapter 10, verse 25, Jesus says, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never, never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given me them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. 
the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. You know, it's been said that Jesus declaring himself as God was rather a liar, a lunatic, or he was the Lord. And of course, we believe and attest that Jesus Christ was true in all that he said because he personified the word of God. Being God in the flesh, he always spoke truth. Thus, when he claimed that he was God, he was being truthful because he, he is God. But I think we have to be careful, as many people throughout the ages have tried to understand this relationship between the Father, Son, and the Spirit, the Trinity. We have to be careful that, that we don't try to illustrate or, or demonstrate an easier way to understand a very difficult doctrine. And maybe you've heard some really bad illustrations J.C. Ryle, in his commentary on the gospel, says that the nature of the union between the Father and Son, that we as humans have no mental capacity to fully understand or explain. He said, Augustine drew illustrations from the sun and its rays, from fire and the light of fire, that though two distinct things are yet inseparable and united, but he says, all illustrations on such subjects halt and fail. He said, at any rate, it is better to believe than to attempt to explain. Our Lord says distinctly, I am the Father, and I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or I am, I and the Father are one. And so we should believe in that truth. So Jesus is demonstrating to us that he is the eternal Son of God. And when you and I come to this season in, 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 our, in our calendar year where we focus upon holidays of giving thanks and, and Christmas, and we look at those, those images of Jesus laying in the manger, we should stop and take a step back and look back and think, this is the preexistent, eternal Son of God that has come into this world as God in the flesh dwelling in a manger stall, living in a human body, not needing anything, and yet at that moment needing the warmth and the nurture of his mother and of swaddling clothes. And it should cause us to worship what Jesus Christ has done. All that he took upon himself of time and space, of suffering and temptation, of hunger and exhaustion, all of that to bear the weight of God's wrath for our sin. Brothers and sisters, that should cause us to bring glory and honor to him. But he only, not only declares that he's the eternal son of God, but he's also declaring to us that he is the eternal creator God. Verse 2 he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And so we see not only did Jesus dwell in eternity, but Jesus was the creative, active agent of creation. I think John is really trying to accomplish two things in this passage. One is he's trying to, to refute uh, heresies that, that had gone on early that, that said that Jesus was a created being. 
So he's teaching us first that Jesus was not created, but instead was the creator. John chapter, uh, or 1 Corinthians chapter 8 reminds us that for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and, and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all things are and, and through whom we exist. Jesus Christ was the one who, who played a part as a part of the Trinity to create us, to make us. We could say that the purpose of creation is for the glory of the Father, but the, the means of our creation comes through the Son. And if Colossians chapter 1 even teaches us that not only did God create all that exists in this world, but that he also sustains us. Not only did he create your body and your mind, not only did he create the world and the habitat that you dwell in, but he sustains every operating function of your body. And that is an amazing thought that he is allowing our bodies to live and breathe and move. That as he participated and, 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 and was the power of, of creation, he was also the one that is keeping us living today. I watched a video yesterday of a group of young scientists who wanted to set the record straight about the universe and our solar system. And, and, and the basic premise of their, of their video was to say that every picture that you've ever seen of the solar system of Earth, where you have the planets lined up, and you know you have the sun, and you have Earth, and you have all the planets, they, that's never a, a great a picture to scale. They always take the, the planets, and they always blow them up, so you can kind of see what the planet's made of, and the color spectrum, and different things. He says that if you took a, a poster like that and you had the, the actual planets compared to the distance between those planets, the planets would be microscopic. You wouldn't be able to see anything. So what these men did is they, they said, we need uh, to, to make a, a better visual picture of the size of just our solar system. So they drive out to the salt flats of Arizona, and in, in a seven-mile span, they make a... a two-scale model of our solar system by literally taking different points of, of, of uh, reference and lining up the, the, the different planets using little, little like illuminated balls or spheres, and they set them in a seven-mile span showing their orbit, and they literally get in their car and they drive the orbit, and then they, you know, send a, 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 a camera up, you know, up into the, into the sky to kind of get an over arcing picture, overarching picture of this orbit. And so if you think about this, that just the, the size of our universe cannot even be depicted in scale without a seven-mile expanse. Like, that, that's a mind-blowing to think. That, that as, as you're looking, you, you could probably barely see a mile. And what these men are trying, and I don't know if they're faith in Christ or not, but what they taught me was how grand the universe really is. That just our small solar system is just a fraction of what God has made. And that your Savior and your Lord Jesus Christ was the one creating in those moments. 
and not only creating, but sustaining the orbit of those planets moment by moment and day by day. And so that we should focus our mind and our attention on what Christ has done. And could you think for a moment about your own personal life? That just as he created you in your mother's womb, and he aided and guided that reproductive process and allowed life to form and a baby to grow and be delivered, that day by day he allowed you to have food and sustenance and to grow and and to allow your mind to even uh, develop in such a way that you could comprehend the world around you, and that the grand finale and the climax of that work in your life is not so that you could earn a, a, a great career and, and, and have accolades, but that you could come to a point in your life of understanding the gospel, that Jesus literally creates you and sustains you so that you can come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, so that you could hear and believe upon not only what he has done for you in your physical life, but that, he can, that you can come to understand what he has done for you for your spiritual life that he has provided a way for you to come to know Jesus or to come to know God through his sacrifice on the cross. This is what Jesus does for us. And so we conclude with my last point, that Jesus is the eternal life giver. I think the jury's out on this passage. Some people believe that... um, John is continuing his creation motif and and believing that Jesus, or that John is talking here about the life that Jesus gives us at creation. So people believe that he's talking about physical life. Verse 4, in him was life, in Jesus was life. And the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And it would make sense that that would be the flow of John's argument. But I'm going to agree with the other side of, of uh, biblical scholars who say that John's already, he's already handled the creation side. He's already handled the point that, that the word of God was, was the one creating us and making us. That without him, not anything was made that was made. Why would John repeat himself in verse 4? See, John is giving us a prologue of what he's going to continually say throughout all of John. This is an introduction And so what he's really saying, in my opinion, is that in Jesus is our spiritual life, is our eternal life, because it's that life that was the light of men. It was that light that shines in the darkness and that the darkness cannot overcome it. It is that light that resides in Christ, that he is the source of our eternal life. That he is the one that, that it comes into the world to even shine upon the darkness. Now, I do think John is, is using this creation illustration for us. Imagine, back to our, our, our understanding of nothingness, that Jesus, that, that Jesus literally is a part of that process where there is nothing and then there is light. The light is literally swallowing the darkness at creation. That in that beginning, light explodes out of nothing. 
And what is, I think, John is teaching us here is that that same thing comes through Jesus Christ when he gives us eternal life. That eternal life in Jesus, when we are in him, when we experience that light, it shines into the darkness of this world. And of course, throughout Scripture, that darkness is represented as sin. That darkness is represented as death. And so just at creation where the light overwhelmed the darkness, the gospel overwhelms the sin and the death within us. We can say from this truth two things. Number one, light always overcomes darkness. There's hope there. Hope that no matter what darkness you face, no matter what life that you live, if you know Jesus Christ, if he is your Lord and Savior, he has overcome your darkness. His, po- <clears throat> Excuse me. his power and his strength to create the worlds, to sustain the worlds, can overcome the darkness in your life. Can overcome the struggle and the temptation and the sin and the failures. There is hope in the life and the light of Jesus Christ. But not only does does the light overcome the darkness, but we know that the darkness never overcomes the light. That the darkness never overcomes the light. That no matter how much Satan and the, the, the world around us that fights against the gospel, that fights against the church, there is never going to be a victory for that evil. Jesus will always overcome I think this is, be- this is perfectly portrayed in the end of, of our, um, our Bibles in Revelation. That as we dwell in eternity, using the image of darkness and light, same author John tells us these beautiful, beautiful words in Revelation 22 verse 3. He says, in all eternity there will no longer be anything accursed but that the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Verse 5, and night will be no more. They They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. What a beautiful picture. What a beautiful picture of Jesus being the eternal source of light in our lives. That we will dwell forever without sin, without struggle. And so this morning, as you come to to worship the eternal Son of God, as you come to believe in Him, to believe in the one who created all things, who, to believe in the one who sustains your very being, do not stop at that, at that point of belief without realizing and worshiping him for the fact that he steps out of heaven to save you. That he steps out of heaven to rescue you. That before the foundations of the world, his plan and his desire was to save you. That before he created Memphis, his plan was to save you. 
And if you've never put your faith and trust in Christ tonight, if you've never believed in him, John gives us an incredible story of Jesus losing a friend named Lazarus. And Jesus journeys to this tomb where his friend is buried. And Jesus speaks one of those I am statements. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And if you're here this morning and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, the Bible says that, that to have that life in him is to believe in him, is to put your trust in him, so that although you may die, yet you will live in eternity. You will live with the source of that light, Jesus Christ. That he has conquered all that was necessary for you to be saved from the wrath of God. To be freed from your bondage of sin. And to dwell for eternity with him. The interesting thing about Lazarus is that Lazarus awoke from physical death. He came out of the tomb. But we assume eventually that Lazarus died years and months and however long later. Jesus brought him out of physical life. But he eventually, death swallowed him again. But for the believer in Jesus Christ to have eternal life given to us, we will no longer fear death. We have the hope of the gospel that Jesus Christ has rescued us. And my prayer this morning is that you would believe and trust in the eternal Son of God to save you that you would believe and trust in the eternal creator of the world to redeem you because he has done all that is necessary this morning. And that is your invitation. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your son. We give you glory through the glory that we give him. And Father, our minds are unable at times to wrap around the truth of the Trinity and the truth of of eternity. But in whatever fraction we can think and ponder and and meditate on, Lord, I, I pray that we would just do it in a way in order to bring you glory. Father, all that you have done in this world through Jesus, nothing nothing that has been done is is deserved, Father. Every act of sun uh, exposure, every drop of rain, every food of bite of food that we eat, all of that is by your mercy. Father, we declare that we are vile and rebellious sinners. That the greatest that we deserve from you, God, is your wrath. And yet you sent your son. We are thankful that Jesus Christ has come. And Father, if there's people here this morning that don't believe in Christ, my prayer that they would be overwhelmed with their sinfulness and their need for him. That they would believe and trust in Jesus who lived a perfect life, who died to pay for their sin, who was buried and who rose from the grave. That the victory that Jesus Christ accomplished can be theirs through him. Father, we love you and we worship you.
It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.